and welcome to the inaugural podcast, edpop.net, educating from a position of power. EdPOP is a network of eight dynamic African-American female educators dedicated to utilizing best practices in all levels of the educational system. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the individuals and does not represent a particular school or district. From the district level to the classroom, we as eight women have dedicated ourselves to creating an equitable environment where all students can achieve their full potential. Together, we have over 140 years of service to the field of education, ranging from district level executives to administrators to the classroom where the action really takes place. The exciting thing and something we are all proud of is the fact that we all started as classroom teachers. All of us have worked in various types of systems from elementary to high school and from public schools to charter. Today, we will be discussing an article on black excellence in education and how the past can elevate the present. So let's get started, my sisters. Can you all introduce yourselves and tell us about your career, what brought you into education and what keeps you here? Good evening. I am Lula Barbie. I'm an educator in urban districts on purpose. My career has spanned over 20 plus years at the secondary level. It has spanned from a classroom teacher to the district level instructional coach, rendering specialized focused in on-site or site-based professional learning, focused on leveraging data-driven data decisions, mathematical practices, andragogical practices, alternative education. What has brought me here, and then what also what keeps me here, is my passion for ensuring that black and brown students are provided enriching learning opportunities. Hello everyone, I'm Stacia Bradley Brown. Uh, I'm a proud product of the Kansas City, Missouri School District, a proud product of public education, urban education. And that's why I spent my 44 year career in urban education. I worked as a speech pathologist, a teacher of students that were developmentally delayed, a social studies resource teacher, an instructional coach, principal, and executive director. The most rewarding part of my work has been, has always been, being in a classroom with students, watching them learn and grow. We are missing one of our sisters today. Our friend Nakisha Harris has been called away on an emergency. Nakisha has been an educator for over 10 years and is an ELA, ELL instructor. She also works in the urban school district and is a proud graduate of the local school district. Greetings, my name is Kawan Cummings and I have 26 years experienced in urban education. I came to walk in my purpose because I was inspired by my kindergarten teacher, Mrs. Wolf, my first principal, Sister Mary Therese, and my fourth grade teacher, Mrs. Valverde, who authentically walked into the classroom and brought herself to each of our lessons. What keeps me in the field is I am enjoying my work with my brothers and sisters in education to not 
merely close but annihilate the achievement gap. Good evening. My name is Monica Nance. My career spans 37 years in education. The majority of my years were spent in the elementary classroom. Additionally, I have served as a building coach, a district coach for literacy, and a curriculum coordinator for ELA K-12. I currently serve as a building instructional coach for intermediate grades. I entered the profession because of the great education I received kindergarten through 12th grade in the Kansas City, Missouri School District. I always say I had the best teachers. I continue in the profession because I love teaching and I believe my work is not done yet. Hi, I'm Shania Roberson. I have 25 years experience in urban school districts. I'm currently an elementary school principal. I've also been an elementary school and middle school teacher, having taught grades two through eight. I've been an instructional coach at the elementary and middle school level and an assistant principal at the elementary level. What encourages me to do what I do is Ms. Nola Fuquay. She is my fourth grade teacher who inspired me and introduced me to the career of education. What keeps me here is the fact that I want to uplift all students and ensure that their gifts and talents are also pruned and brought about and developed in order for them to be the most productive citizens and obtain all of their goals. Hello, I am Lynn Shipley and education is my third career and so far the most rewarding. I'm a fourth generation educator in Missouri and I specialize in working with students in technology. I work with staff and students in professional development and with social justice reforms. What brought me into education as my third career was simply a desire to see students be creators and not just generators of the status quo. I'm hoping that I provide many experiences for our kids to grow and that they become and developed a love for whatever their dreams are and will take them through the rest of their lives. So today we're going to be discussing an article, Historical Black Excellence Provides a Blueprint for Reimagining Education by Goldie Muhammad. Dr. Muhammad is currently an associate professor and director of the Urban Literacy Collaborative and Clinic at Georgia State University. So let's get started discussing our article. Today, um, our goal is to collectively construct meaning, clarify and expand our thinking while we think about ways we can apply our new thinking in our work. So let's begin by sharing a sentence from our text that you think is particularly significant. Well, group, if I may, I would like to go ahead and start off um, our discussion. There is one specific um, sentence that I think is um, very poignant and it talks about 
teacher education programs that typically do not help future teachers learn how to disrupt oppression like racism in the classroom yes. is truly a, an issue that needs to be discussed and talked about as we're looking at how do we prepare um, teachers for culturally relevant um, teaching, um, what those practices look like in the classroom, and how does that translate into how they engage learning with our students? Now, I want to piggyback on that, um, Lula. Uh, when they talk about teacher programs, one of the sentences that stuck out to me was the fact that uh, programs use theorists such as Dewey, Vygotsky, and Piaget, but they omit the scholarship of our African-American theorists like Carter G. Woodson, Anna Julia Cooper, and Mary McLeod or W.E.B. Du Bois. That is a large concern for me because it keeps those individuals who stand in front of our children from understanding the scholarship that has taken place for hundreds of years in this country. The sentence that stood out for me is where it talks about it's at the closing of the article, but it says intellectually invigorating and deeply humanizing education is urgently needed, especially for our students of color to overcome decades of oppression and lost opportunity. That really resonated with me. Um, I see this on a daily basis. And this is one of the reasons that I am still in education. It's keeping me here um, to, to, to work through the challenges that we have to ensure um, the best for our brown and black students. And so Shania, when you refer to the closing, something that really made my heart skip a beat right in the beginning was a sentence that says, in some of the largest school districts across the nation, Frameworks, policies, standards, and curriculum are devoid of the voices, scholarship, and histories of people of color. The sentence that stuck out for me um, was the one that says writing was regarded as the highest intellectual exercise, never assigned or developed from prompts. And that so resonated with me because of uh, first of all, my love for writing instruction and the importance that I believe it has in the classroom and the fact that authentic writing is what needs to be happening in the classroom, not writing from prompts. Writing from prompts do not engage children the way that authentic writing, the studying of genres and modeling yourselves after wonderful authors allows students to do. Yes, that also gets into uh, what it mentioned in our article about um, um, your intellect, intellect, intellectualism, things like that, when you're writing not from a prompt, but you're writing from something that you care deeply about, then that really gets into your intellect. Um, and it mentioned that in our article. Yeah. Can, can, I, can I add to that? Because mm -hmm. for me, the underlying uh, sentence for the whole article is simply uh, when it gives the 12 points, the very last point, number 12, the very first sentence, our ancestors did not desire Euro, uh, Eurocentricity. Yeah. That for me gets to the point of having education that is modeled 
that is not modeled for us. That, that just, that gets to the whole point. And when you're talking about literacy and the fact that that was the highest form of what they were looking for, how, how do you think that took place so long ago? I was watching a television show the other day <clears throat> and, and one person said to the other, uh, you spent your life living your life trying to make white people feel comfortable instead of being you. Wow. And that's what I think of when, when you say what you said, our ancestors didn't desire Eurocentricity. Well, then let's talk about, let's share a phrase that you found significant, that you found stimulating in this article. One of the things, the phrases I liked, and I'm going to use this a lot in my work, was uh, that bulleted point about references to struggling students and not struggling instruction. Oh, we yeah. always want to blame yes, the yes. students, but yes. we never look at what the teacher is or isn't doing to help the students. We call them struggling students, and so I like that references to struggling students and not struggling instruction. We need to have more conversations about that. Dr. Brown, to expand on it a little bit more, um, I, I, uh, that stuck out with me also, especially when they were referencing in the article about terminology that is used in order to depict a deficit mindset when it comes to students of color. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and how we have um, contributed to basically those microaggressions as it relates to their intellectual ability. Mm -hmm. um, we use words such as at risk, mm -hmm. like yes. you said, struggling, mm -hmm. um, how, or uh, other terminology that wasn't included, words like lazy, um, unmotivated. Yeah. Uh, all of those are, are, to me, dark terms that suggest um, a, a level of, um, in um, of, of intellect yeah. that is absent or what they try to claim is absent, right? With our students, our, our black and brown students, that just isn't true. Yeah. And so, you know, I guess for me, then the question becomes, how do we as educators um, go back to the roots that our ancestors have paid for, paved for us that goes into um, a phrase that I um, really enjoyed that talked about um, how um, our ancestors basically, we learned best through the collaborative and a shared yep. responsibility for learning versus mm -hmm. an individualism that takes mm -hmm. place. And mm -hmm. how, when we learned, we learned in groups of mixed age and abilities, and that helped us develop the subjective part of knowledge versus just focusing on the objective part that we currently see in our educational system. One of the things that I think about were those labels you use, those terms that you use, like calling students at risk, unmotivated, defiant, because once we do that, once that's done and, and that label is put on that student, then it sets in that mindset. And once that mindset takes over, 
that's that's a, the real work that we have to work to undo because that mindset says our students aren't our black and brown students aren't capable and will never be capable. Yeah, and that is why the phrase just because of what you ladies are saying, the phrase from the article that says all students should be all citizens should be deeply concerned by students being asked to check their identities at the schoolhouse gate. That is why it is so poignant for us to really um, embrace the work of Christopher Emden, uh, who wrote for white folks who teach in the hood and the rest of y'all too. That is one as well as uh, works by Dr. Kanjufu. Because again, it talks about those techniques that help us to check our instructional practices as opposed to putting the accountability on the students. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And I agree with that. That brings me to my phrase, which talks about holding the teachers accountable for teaching culturally relevant ways and ensuring that they have that culturally relevant pedagogy, um, professional learning uh, that they can reach back into and have all those strategies um, to, to make, ensure that that's happening. So holding those teachers accountable uh, for the uh, struggling instruction and then helping them, giving them that lift up, uh, giving them that support and helping them to scaffold to where they need to be so that we can get our students um, where they need to be. Yeah, and the reality is having the courage to hold teachers accountable because in our article, it tells us only 7% of today's teaching force are African-American. And so then we have to have that courage to hold teachers accountable and stand ready to withstand that wave, the reverberations, the kickbacks that are gonna come when you do something like that. When you do something, I've seen people lose their jobs because they do something like that. And that, that's what stood out to me also. And Monica had posted something earlier asking, you know, about what teachers stood out to you. And the first part of that sentence talks about our ancestors centered and revered black teachers and their experiences. And I just, I, I told her, I said, I remember riding my bicycle in my neighborhood and riding by my sixth grade teacher, Mrs. Johnson's house, and she'd be out watering flowers. And she would always ask, how is school going? How's your brother doing? How's your family doing? And to grow up in a family of educators, to grow up in a neighborhood that had your teachers live there, that to me uh, signaled that teaching was like, uh, it opened up the world. It could open up the world to, to anyone and to be around, to hear the family discussions about what it took. And even though uh, it took me a while to get into uh, education, the fact is that I am one of those 7%. How do we increase that number so our students can benefit from learned experiences from people that look like them? Yeah. Yeah, and, and so I, I know someone mentioned the, the phrase or the sentence about children not, black and brown children not thriving to their full potential. Yeah. And, and that, that that is the one of the ones that that I selected as my phrase, and I I think that it's important for us to think about the fact that there are unfortunately teachers that sit in classrooms today 
that don't believe that children can learn to their fullest potential. And so they keep the bar very low. They just do the very minimum. And so, you know, this article just really uh, made me think about, you know, the fact that as an instructional coach and someone who is going into the classroom and supporting these teachers, you know, very often I get frustrated with, with teachers when I'm, I'm trying to coach them up and, you know, trying to get them to realize that their, their bar is so low that the children can do, they can do, they can meet your expectation. Mm -hmm. they, and, but, but you have to teach them at that level. Mm -hmm. Yes. And, 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 and this article uh, just really uh, brings that out so well. Mm -hmm. And one of the trends right now, we're really shining a light on adult collective responsibility. We're creating a culture of collaboration. And if we can't do this, if we can do this as the adults in the buildings, in the communities, in learning, then we should be expecting this, one of the seven uh, principles of Kwanzaa from our students and really bring out their strengths and help them shine and make sure that that cultural collaboration is something that's reiterated and that will greatly have an impact on what's happening in our community. One of my concerns is I often say that, uh, well, teachers who are not black can't out black me. You can't tell me what is effective for children of color and not listen to people of color to ask them what their opinions are and how to move our students forward. So when I think about all the policies and the policy makers and all the books that are written and all the theorists that are discussed, again, I very seldom see people who look like me, who have who, who people are actually acknowledging might have a, a roadmap, a blueprint per se, to how to work with our children to make them better. I, I was gonna say, I think this article gives us a pretty good roadmap, but it's not enough. It's not enough, but I think it's a beginning. It's a beginning, you know, and I still worry about that 7% um, of today's teaching force is African-American and uh, one predominantly, well, one uh, HBCU that I um, know their work, it's HBCU, but most of their education majors are not African-American. So it's a big issue that, that, that needs to be dealt with, and not just locally, but nationally. So then it brings us to the question of how then as educators do we rally around one another in order to disrupt this idea of Eurotrans, um, that Eurocentric ideology, right? So how do we go back to and engage in what it looks like as it relates to black excellence, as it relates to um, the intellectual components that our ancestors um, took a long time to craft and perfect. How do we put those things back into the classroom in a way that is going to, um, you know, just cause a ripple effect, right? Not just in one school, but across many schools, across many districts, across states. 
how do we bring back that spirit of excellence and, and, and celebrating genius mm -hmm. within our black and brown students to where they are um, hungry for it, right? Mm -hmm. um, so that, that then, you know, just kind of leads to a, a more deeper question, you know, for me as, as educators, as current educators, how do we bring that back, not only just for students, but how do we um, go to the recruiting of other black educators, right? To be, in the, to be in the classrooms in order to make impact and difference, not just classrooms, but to be at the table as administrators, to be at the table as coaches, to be at the table in all facets of education K through 12 so that we can render ourselves victorious again. Does that make sense, ladies? It does make so sense. Like that's, yes. that's like the challenge, really, that we have at this time. Yes. And you know, so, I remember my work with um, African-centered schools years ago. They had that collective responsibility in their schools. And that was one of the reasons why they were so successful. Because one, it was collective responsibility. Two, they believed that all students could achieve at high levels. And because they believed it, the students believed it, their parents believed it, and they set about their work that way. And when a student struggled with something, they weren't left behind. Someone worked with them and continued working with them till they understood it, they got it, and they were ready to continue on. So it's, it was a completely different mindset. A lot of people thought that those schools, the, uh, the African-centered schools that had usually probably 98% African-American student body, but they were achieving so well every year on standardized assessments, they just had to be cheating, but they weren't. It was in the mindset and that collective responsibility that they shared. Of course, one reality in recruiting uh, students of color into our field is finances. It's the salary. And so one thing that we've got to do is, I believe, as we are working to change these policies, and it's not in our locus of control just yet, but we have to gather the strength to fight this, uh, this current status, disrupt that status quo, is engaging our people in financial literacy because there are so many avenues that where as educators, we can supplement our incomes and have our voices heard as we are beginning this work and keeping this work going. And so again, that is going to be key as we are bringing them into the fold and giving them different ways that they can turn this passion into more liquid assets. Yes. I agree with that. And I also like to add that um, beginning early is also key. So in middle school, even in elementary school, when we're doing our career fairs, don't forget to tell them about the other careers other than the classroom teacher. So we want to uh, lift up the classroom teacher who they see every day who could explain a little bit more about what they do on a daily basis. And then also at that middle and high school level, how can we create programs where students are able to come in and actually begin to work with students and see if that is something um, that they may be interested in. So how can we get some of those programs going in our urban districts where we have our, our students of, of color 
um, and began to spark their brains and get their minds going around the, a career in education. There was I also, I also want to look at the human resource gatekeepers. When we have gatekeepers who don't uh, value uh, the experiences of people of color, or they provide additional hurdles, or they don't provide avenues that will help those teachers develop into skilled educators, simply because it is the nature of the beast, that the, the, the belief is not there, or that they consider HBCUs inferior, or so many things, so many roadblocks, so many tests and questionnaires that keep out good educators simply because they don't acquiesce to what is norm, norm standards. And so when we look at who our gatekeepers are, we really should help develop alternative ways to get into education if that's where we want our individuals to come into. That 7% number is so low to me. I feel like, like if I counted all the members of my family who were in education, that that would be the 7% because that's how many of them were in education. And so I, that's just such a, a terribly low number when I think about where we came from. But I also look at the fact that they dismantled the whole Negro education system after Brown versus Board of Ed. And so at that point, you could be a teacher up to eighth grade with two years of college. Mm -hmm. And they just completely took away those standards. And then we think about how many of our forefathers, our ancestors were taught under that segregated system and what they produced. You know, I don't understand why a bridge was not created to help those individuals get into the field of education. Yes. You know, I'm, I'm reminded of, um, uh, as Lynn says, I come from a family of educators. My father's a retired educator. And uh, when he retired, he was in the, um, he was in the, at Central Missouri State University. I have to call it that. I know it changed names. <laughs> he was at Central Missouri State University in, in administration supervision and higher education. But one of the things he did started a program in the Kansas City, Missouri School District uh, with high school seniors to get them interested in becoming teachers. And what high school did he go to? Central High School. And yeah. he was working with high school seniors to get them interested in teaching. So they did something like a modified student teaching experience so they could get them into classrooms with students. And they also did some instructional things with them so they would understand what teachers need to know and be able to, to, to do to teach. But at the end of a student's involvement with that program, they also had college credit. And so as we sit here and talk about that, maybe that's something we could look into to bring back. And lest we not forget, while well, 7% of the educators are, are, are of color, 2% are comprised of black male educators, 2%. Wow. That's yeah, I, I agree with everything you all have said. And, and, and I would add that one of the things that I've not heard is that as, as educators and as African-American educators, we have to be spokespersons for our profession. Mm 
And there are many professions out there where people are always, you know, talking about like right now, STEM, a career in STEM and, you know, a career in medicine and, and all of that. And I, 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 I've said it myself, it's come out of my mouth, but I also will say, have you ever thought about being an educator? Have you ever thought about being a teacher? Uh, you have some of the qualities of, of an educator. And so, you know, we have to be spokespersons for our profession. And then I would also add, we have to be a part of organizations that push mm. people into education. Mm-hmm. And I'll just make a, a very light uh, plug for the National Sorority <laughs> Phi Delta Kappa, of which I am a member of. We are a Black educator sorority. And our purpose, one of our main purposes, well, our purposes is youth education and service. And so part of what we do is we work with young people to get them interested in education, not just at the high school level, but also we work with them and mentor them in college, when they are in college, when they are in an education Mm -hmm. program. So I think the onus is also on us as well. Yeah, I agree. The, the one thing I can say is once you come into education also, uh, I, I cannot lie. I was uh, the benefactor of wonderful mentors, uh, uh, two which are here on our conversation, to be honest, uh, which is uh, Stacia and, and, and Chanel. And the fact that they were available they uh, provided instruction, they critiqued, uh, and then helped scaffold my learning. That is uh, extremely important. Once we get people into the field, we can't just let them flounder. I agree. And I have an experience similar to that when I um, was in the classroom and I was a fledgling teacher who didn't have a clue what she was doing. And the African-American teacher next door just point blank said to me, listen, why are you teaching reading like that? I'm like, oh my goodness. But that's all I knew. And she said, let me tell you what you need to do. And she put me on the right path. And we probably all have stories like that, but we need to be that to others as well. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. Does anyone else want to talk about what ways does this um, article support your work? What, what kinds of ways might it change your thinking and you might do something differently because of reading this article? In some work that I'm doing right now, we are planning for our next year so that uh, we can rebrand our learning community. And you know the vision started with the high school. Everyone's thinking high school, we're gonna be career ready. We're gonna have these great paths. We're gonna have students who will explore the endless possibilities within the, the 21st century workforce. And so at elementary, Monica and I have worked together in creating five pillars mm-hmm. that, because elementary is the foundation. 
So we have five pillars of leadership, academic excellence, as well as, oh, you might have to help me with this, Monica. <laughs> I know financial literacy. Ah, the other one, well, one of the main ones I'm th this makes me think of is self-awareness and self-pride. Mm -hmm. And so this article really has gotten my heart pounding. It's got me pumped and amped. And I believe that this will be a great article as we're formulating the PD for our teachers to understand why that pillar of self-awareness is so vital to our work. I would like to add to that. Um, I too, it's adding to my work in the way uh, and the direction we will be going in the fall as well uh, with our diversity and inclusion piece um, that has been needed for a very, very long time that has uh, come to pass. And so the planning around what that will look like, what that will entail, and the urgency of it. Let me say that again, the urgency of it. Um, I think this article pulls out that part. Well, I like the fact that it adds to my toolbox. I'm a coach. And one of the things I remember a teacher was like, well, with the pandemic, are we teaching, are we still pushing culturally relevant teaching mm. at, in a sense that it was a choice, like I want to do best practices or I need to include culturally relevant pedagogy. Mm -hmm. And I explained that it's an and, mm -hmm. that one does not exclude the other. So this is a, a great way to bring in the history of why being culturally relevant is important in every subject, every, every day, in every classroom lesson that we do. And I, I just think this is an excellent conversation piece to have as a school well i was i was thinking uh that your when you said does something in the article that that makes you think about something that you'll do maybe differently and i was thinking uh it maybe it's maybe not so differently it's that i'm on the right track I think we're on the right track in terms of uh, the work around literacy and, you know, and I always, I always tend to go back to the, the teaching part because that's where my love is. Like I said in my intro, I love teaching. And so that's the text and the libraries they talk about are the nucleus of all learning. And so in the work that um, I have done and Dr. Brown and, and Kwan and all of these ladies on this podcast have done is work with schools to build libraries and to build libraries that are full of books of not just people that that don't look like them but 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 books and characters and authors that do look like them mm -hmm. and to encourage the love of writing a lot of our teachers don't want to teach writing because writing was one of those subjects in school that they didn't do well in. Yeah. And so therefore they come into the classroom and they, they kind of just, you know, I don't know how to teach writing, but that's the work of coaches and going to school and all of that, that will help them to grow in that area. But this, this article did help me to uh, realize that we are doing some things correctly 
in terms of, of definitely in terms of literacy. We just got to get other people to join us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And Monica, those books and authors are serving as both windows and mirrors for our students. Mm -hmm. They are serving, they are serving as windows because they show a myriad of perspectives and possibilities, mm -hmm. limitless possibilities at the same time. Whereas when they are able to pick up books with characters and are, that books that are written by authors that look like themselves, they see themselves and it's relevant and they can make those profound connections. One of the things I like about this is it talks, it does talk about literature. When I, I'm in secondary and so many of our kids dislike reading. And this talks about how important reading was. And, 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 and I wonder what happens to get them to dislike finding themselves in books. And I think that's it. A lot of times they probably dislike reading because they don't find themselves in books that they're being made to read. They don't find themselves in books. They don't find positive, Im positive images of themselves and the people in their neighborhood in books. And so reading just isn't that interesting. It, 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 they can't relate to it wow. because they don't find themselves in it and the people in their neighborhood aren't in it. When I was a girl, I had to read Dick, Jane, and Sally. They didn't look like that in the neighborhood I lived in, you know? <laughs> and the little girls didn't wear no dresses all day like that. And the father of white shirt, long sleeves, and a tie all day. They didn't look like that in my neighborhood. And consequently, reading those books was of no interest to me. Not alone was it no interest to me, it was no value to me. No value. That's, that's a deep statement. And no I value. think that it's still the case a lot of the times. And I would add that words like at risk, yes, unmotivated, defiant, yeah. non-readers, children yeah. have heard people yeah. call them those words. Yeah those names. Yeah. And so when you are a struggling reader, you know, a, a, a student that's not doing as well mm -hmm. as, as they could in terms of reading, mm -hmm. they begin to get this, this, they, they wear it. They wear that non-reader label. They do. they do. They wear that label of being unmotivated. Yeah. And so they approach a text with a very nonchalance of, yes. It's not important. Yeah, yeah. So, and you know what? And we also have to be aware of those subliminal messages we're giving students. And everything we say, we don't say. And everything we do, our looks, our gestures. Think about all those subliminal messages kids get 100 times a day, 100 yeah. times a day and more. We have to be careful of that. And I also want to make a link back to what Monica said about writing and the fact that when they have choice and are not prompted. So I agree the same thing with reading. Um, there are points when we, yes, there are things they have to read, but how about we start with giving them some choice and voice in what they read and we're not prompting them and telling them what they have to read. I think that's critical as well. That's a good point. Yes. Mm-hmm. I know in one of her uh, 12 points, point number three, 
she talks about cultivating genius was the goal. Mm -hmm. I found the words genius and intellect throughout African-American 19th century writings. Yeah. I think, yeah, what is just complete opposite of what we're talking about now. You're talking about unmotivated, yeah. uh, at risk. And they repeatedly heard these words that you were genius, yeah. you were genius, your intellect, critical thinking skills, all of those things that we know are important yes. in, in the classroom. Yes, yes. And we can no longer be uh, complacent and, and welcome proficient. We have to go that extra mile and our teachers have to learn how to pull that genius from our students and deepen that cognitive complexity and awareness of the skills that we need to create and have design thinking within the classrooms. I don't wanna hear proficient anymore. Yes. yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. And well, so that definitely speaks to um, a point that is made in this blueprint where it talks about in the midst of resistance and pain, how our ancestors did not relinquish the experience of joy while learning, right? So again, how yeah. do we capture that? How do we rekindle that spirit um, where students are, you know, they do feel that passion and that joy for learning. They don't mind celebrating that they are genius in their own right. Um, I think, you know, Dr. Brown, you had mentioned um, basically about uh, the imagery that students just do not see themselves, you know. And when I think about some of the um, lessons and some of the stories or some of the settings and some of the stories where they are uh, reflective of, of stereotypes, really, right? Of, of black people um, or just people of color then, you know, no, I probably wouldn't really run to pick up that type of title, right? Because if I'm mm -hmm. con consistently told that I am that, mm -hmm. right? And I'm trying to disrupt the imagery of, of that, that you have of me, that you hold of me um, through the microaggressions that you, you know, say to me, that you display upon me and project upon me, or through the low, expectations that you have of me as it relates to my intellectual you know competencies then no I probably wouldn't want to read certain things um, you know I would want to read something that's going to show me how to project a different trajectory for my life and for those around me and so uh, that also speaks to um, number eight in the article where it talks about how they cultivated libraries. And so how do we cultivate libraries, not only for students, but then we also have to cultivate those libraries for adults, yeah. right? So what does that look like? And how do we intentionally and strategically make sure like uh, Lynn was saying, how do we go, go about recruiting individuals that look like us, right? the theorists that look like us, practitioners that look like us, recruit those individuals to come in and do the trainings because what we often see are our white counterparts who tell us how we are supposed to teach our students and but they don't have and share the same experiences as we do. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we will always be black. They can choose to take on some of the tendencies that they say we as black people have yeah. so you know there is a true difference and so you know those are all things that for me when i think about how do i keep myself encouraged 
it is definitely number 11, you know, probably writing different affirmations for myself that's, that supports the passion of how do I, in the midst of resistance and pain, how do I still trudge forward, ensuring that in the path of my, in the sphere of my influence, I am making sure that people are doing what is right by our students. And when I say our students, I'm talking about our students of color, our black and brown students. How do I make sure that I am having those conversations with them that challenges their theory of thought as it relates yeah. to what the students can do, as it relates to how far our students can learn, as it relates to their ability to be individualist in the sense that they can come in as their authentic selves and yeah. still make milestones and make markers and, and probably surpass some of their white counterparts, mm -hmm. easily, right? And so how do we allow them to have space in a learning environment that will allow them to celebrate who they are unapologetically, yeah, just yeah. as we as adults are trying to navigate now in this, how do we show up unapologetically in yeah. our roles and in our positions within a, an educational system that for so long asked, asked us to conform to yeah. what it is that they have said to be right and true. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, that gets so, us Lou, back to those systems designed for us. Yes. That gets us back to that. And that's going to take some work to get that done. So, Lula, your, uh, your insight helped me to remember that obvious fifth pillar that I forgot about when we we're talking about the foundations in the elementary world. And that is the career pathway, the career explorations at the young age. And so that recruitment of, of uh, educators of color can start right there. Don't just bring in teachers, bring in our classified staff to talk to our uh, students during career fairs and during when we're celebrating different pathways, bring in people from the district level who I don't have, we have the audacity to think that the superintendents from various districts wouldn't come in and love to spend some time with our students. So again, as we are learning about different ways that uh, students can thrive in education, different positions available, that's a great way to start recruiting right there, even in primary. Well, let, let me get us to the point where we kind of wind down and get ready to close out our conversation. So finally, I would ask you to share one word that emerges for you as insightful or memorable uh, from this article, from reading this article, and give a brief explanation. The word that I'm gonna go with is self-discovery. And I'm gonna go with self-discovery because I'm thinking, and when I'm thinking about everything we've talked about and all the things we need that we've said, things that need to be changed or uh, altered in the system now, it's all surrounded about by self-discovery. So it's self-discovery of different districts and uh, different personnel, uh, figuring out um, what is right and, and what we need to do. And then it trickles down to the teachers and then that self-discovery that students will be allowed to have um, in the classrooms. And so self-discovery is gonna be the word that, that I'm choosing. The one I like, and, and it's 
two words though, but it's deficit stance. And I believe I'll be using that a lot in the future in my conversations with people just to make them more aware of what they're thinking and what their mindset is, that they have that deficit thinking about our students to get them to change that mindset. Well, I think the word that, um, that I wanna put on the table, and it's a word that I have not used very much, well, I don't think I've used it very much at all in my career, but this article really brought it out in me, and it's the word agitate. <laughs> and I say <laughs> agitate because 37 years in education, I've seen a lot starting in the early 80s all the way up to the year 2021 i've seen so much and there have been times when i have spoken out and agitated and then i kind of furrow back and say okay monica shut your mouth up but i think in the beginning i said that i believe that my work is not done and perhaps the work that I need to do is to agitate. Mm. Mm -hmm. So that's that, that I'm gonna leave that right there. Okay. <laughs> Two things that stand out for me, urgency, 7%. Okay. Mm. Yes, that's an art, that, mm. that's urgent. Okay. All right. What stands out for me is reframe and reimagining education. Mm. And I say that as it relates to, it goes back to some of the tidbits that each of you ladies have talked about when you talk about the urgency, the urgency of rekindling the spirit of, of black excellence and the emergence of the reemergence of what it means um, to, to be free to show their intellectual ability. That to me kind of goes with what Shaniel was saying about self-discovery, because in order for our students to be able to, to self-discover themselves, we have to create systems that supports that level of understanding and how to seek out um, those different facets of themselves. Um, I loved what Monica was saying when she was talking about the agitation, right? And so even in that reframing and reimagining ed ed education, how do we agitate and disrupt the status quo, what is currently being um, utilized and, and what is our driving force now? How do we disrupt that and agitate it in such a way that it is inclusive of everyone? Right, especially our black and brown students. Um, how do we allow them to be comfortable in their own selves to be able to show up in the space as competitors, right, within the system? Mm -hmm. And then, um, yeah, it's just how do how do we reframe and reimagine education mm -hmm. to where it allows our students to just really authentic authentically show up as themselves yeah. and being okay with not being part of the status quo, but yeah. yet still being equally competitive as their next counterpart. Yes. Lynn, will you share your um, one word and then take us out of here? Sure. Close um, us out. The word that I've selected is genius. 
I feel as a people to be here, we have had we we have some sort of genius about us. Mm -hmm. And the fact that coming out of uh, being enslaved, taking advantage of the reconstruction period, building schools, uh, creating a environment for us to thrive and live and survive, it takes a very real high level of genius to make all of those things take place. Yeah. Uh, the fact that we all have been able to take advantage of the education system that has been provided for us, that mm -hmm. we are all giving back in some way to our black and brown students and not just black and brown students, we believe in best practices for all students. And I think that equity that takes place as an African-American teacher should spill over to what a school system should use in order to create equity for all students. Mm -hmm. So that word genius, mm -hmm. that resonates with me on every level. Okay. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the individuals and does not represent a particular school or district. Well, ladies, that concludes our first podcast of edpop.net, the Educating from a Position of Power Network. We'd like to thank all of our educators for participating in this stimulating discussion. If you have questions or would like to comment on this podcast, please go to www.edpop.net. That's www.edpop.net. Dot net, go to the comment tab and leave us a message. We would love to hear from you. Please tune in next time when we will discuss more about best practices and creating the classroom, school, and district of your dreams. Until then, remember you have the power to educate responsibly. <laughs>